Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. Thank you. Welcome to the Bonnie Podcast. Thanks for waking up on a Sunday morning. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So you said you're a morning riser. You woke up at 6 a.m. on a Sunday. So you, have you always been a, a morning riser? Yes, I've always been. Um, I usually wake up 5, 30, 6 o'clock. I just, morning's my favorite time of the day where no one's up and it's kind of quiet and nice and I get a lot of thinking time. Um, you know, I just, uh, it's just one of my favorite times. I make myself a cup of tea or coffee, whatever's uh, the juice of the day and kind of get into sort of this thinking mode. And now I do a little gardening or go for a little walk, just uh, get the day started, sort of preparatory. I, I go to bed early, so I'm, you know, by 10 o'clock, I'm half dead. Okay. Uh, but <laughs> early morning is my favorite time. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I've read that most CEOs, most successful CEOs are morning risers. Because of that, my New Year's resolution every year is to be a morning riser, and I do it for maybe a week, and then I go back to normal. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I've just always been a morning person. So you're the CEO, founder, CEO of a, tell me if this is not, this is like a, not the right term, but a tiny house micro home company or, or micro green living company. And how did you get started in that? So I'm the founder COO. Um, oh. We have a CEO who is the creator of the idea. So, um, uh, you know, I have never been in real estate. My background is in engineering. Um, I have managed very large multinationals, industrial companies. Um, a lot of my time was spent in building materials. Very interestingly, through a friend, I was introduced to our founder CEO. Uh, his name is Aaron Levy. He lives in Austin, Texas. Uh, and he's an architect, designer. He's always had this idea of coming up with something for what's known as a middle market. You know, people who are renting today. Uh, not ready to buy a house, but want some independent living, you know, a little bit of a yard, a little bit of a patio, don't want to be attached to somebody else, top or bottom. And uh, it's considered sort of a middle housing concept. And he's always been interested in it. I think um, uh, during COVID, uh, we saw the level of depression and loneliness going up uh, because a lot of people living in these buildings had no community connection. Mm. Um, and that's what kind of drove us. And we, um, so I met Aaron, we started talking about this. He already had bought a piece of land and he was kind of contemplating what to do with it. And this was an idea he had. So we kind of gestated together uh, the idea and brought it forward. And, um, and our third partner also joined in. He is in the legal side, uh, more of an administrative side. My role is to come in and, you know, if it was just one community, of micro homes, these are 400 to 800 square feet homes. Um, that would probably not be my forte because I'm not a real estate guy, I'm not a construction guy. Um, my background is more in scaling up businesses. Uh. I've had the opportunity to work as a CEO for three different businesses uh, and I've had the opportunity to grow businesses um, for the last 20 years, about 50 to 20 years of my life, multiple businesses, doubling them in size, taking them global, growing them, you know, either in their core business or adjacent businesses. And uh, so my thought of joining Casada uh, to come back to your question is really uh, help Casada scale up. Uh, start with a small model, a prototype, 
get it verified, and then scale up. And that's kind of what we've done. Um, Casada since launch, we launched on March 15th, our website, we had 15,000 hits within 30 days. Um, We have 60 units for rent, and 30 of them have already been rented. We are four months from opening. Wow. And we expect it to be fully rented in the next couple of months, uh, which means there's a huge demand for this type of a space. And originally, we started with millennials in mind, um, people who may be uh, with a lot of student debt. Now, what we're finding is there's a very broad range of people who are interested in this product. And our age of people who have rented so far is from 27 to 74. Mm, And one third of them are over 40, significantly, you know, over millennials. So two thirds are still millennials, which is we're hitting the target population well. Um, but one third is over 40. So uh, we see this demand growing. So we have now announced four other communities in the Texas market, and we are looking to expand in Florida, North Carolina, um, Arizona, uh, areas where people are moving. Wow. People are moving to those areas. I'll tell you, I've been looking at, we've been looking at houses here in New York, uh, in the in Long Island, and every person that sells, uh, is selling is moving to Florida uh, or or Texas, or Carolinas. But Florida, we hear a lot. So that's really interesting. So the name Casada, I'm assuming Casa means uh, house in, in, in Spanish, and that's where the name comes from? It's actually, Casada is an Italian word. Oh, it actually okay. means a nobleman's house. Nobleman's so house. It, uh, it came about, but we found it. We were looking for something that's kind of easily rolls off your tongue. Mm. And we eventually, we actually talked about it. We would like Casada to become a verb one day, you know, oh, let's, like, casada. let's casada for a few days, because one of the things with casada also, every community, 10% of them will be short-term rentals, like an Airbnb, VRBO. So you don't have to um, live there. You can go and experience the community because the community, in addition to the units, has also a great common living space, which will have co-working, um, uh, entertainment space, video game room, gym, pool, all the amenities that people look for. We have running tracks, yoga parks. Uh, We'll be bringing food trucks in Um, on weekends. There'll be little concerts by local artists, a trade fair, you know, sort of uh, craft fairs, um, boot camps uh, and yoga in the mornings and, uh, you know, whiskey tasting and beer tasting in the afternoon, that kind of stuff. So there'll be a lot of amenities organized. Um, The community also has what we call a a campus alchemist, um, community manager sort of, who organizes and orchestrates these events. What do you see the demand? Uh, how do you see the demand going after uh, po- when everything opens up for communal activities like that? I'll tell you right now, I live in a building, it's a luxury building and they have activities. They have the gym that just opened up and I, I didn't know, I didn't think people would actually go, but the first day the gym opened, it was packed. Um, I, I think as you're seeing post COVID, there's a huge pent up demand for just about everything. Um, it doesn't matter what you do. People are looking for things to do because they've been cooped up at their, in their homes and have been sitting around. And um, especially if you live up in the Northeast where winter takes a big part of your life, um, now people are just looking for outdoors and looking for things to do. Um, in Florida, we've been open for quite a while. And it, it's even in the, it, this is our peak summer season. Typically, things kind of slow down around this time because people move up north at that time. Um, But even now, we're finding it very, very busy. Every event gets sold out or or there's a lot of demand for pretty much all activities. So 
we think um, depending on you know we are opening our opening date is October first. We expect um, this sort of non-core activities, which are you know, core meaning rental and utilities, right? Non-core is all these other things. We expect a pretty significant demand. And one of the things we've done is we've developed an app that allows people to uh, do all the home automation, like opening their doors, turning awesome. their thermostats on, using their ring um, um, cameras to see what's going on, pay their rent, utilities, buy everything from car washing to dog cleaning or you know uh, food delivery, things like that. They can also look up their community events through that and, and sign up for that. So we are that Casada app. We just went live uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Will be a big driver in drawing people in to activities and events. We'll also have philanthropic activities. We have actually signed up with the food shelters in the area. Uh, the community will be going, and you know, members of the community will join up, go and build homes for habitat. You know, those are all part Love of it. our ethos of doing well. Any plans to come up northeast? So Casada uh, is ideally suited for uh, non-urban cores. Uh, when I say that, we are targeting uh, the second cities okay. uh, where there are jobs and there are people who, you know, our target a uh, target range of people making money is sixty to eighty thousand dollars to be able to afford uh, a Casada rental, right? And the Texas market and the Austin market. Our rental is about twelve hundred to fifteen hundred dollars, which is about right there on the spot. Um, so we we want to make it very affordable. The issue with the Northeast is land. You know, having available land, we need ten to fifteen acres of land close to geographic proximity of some entertainment. So right now we are not looking at the Northeast. We are looking at the Smile region of the United States. You know, everywhere from D.C. all the way to um, Phoenix, um, that kind of area. Uh, we will be looking at cities like uh, uh, Utah in, 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 in towns in, in Utah and Arizona and places like that. Again, where there is sort of other types of entertainment, we either look for very strong job growth uh, and a combination of um, entertainment like natural amenities like parks, lakes, you know, things like that, or um, some sort of uh, entertainment like Disney or, okay. uh, you know, in Vegas, you know, that kind of entertainment. Gotcha. Because that's where we think millennials gravitate towards. So I'd love to hear about your background. Did you, were you born in Bangladesh? Uh, and when, if you were, when did you come here? I was born in Dhaka. Uh, yeah, uh, pre-liberation. Uh, okay. So I was born in Dhaka and then raised in Chittagong for okay. eight or nine years of my life. Then I moved back to Dhaka. My dad worked for a multinational. So we moved back to Dhaka and lived there until I migrated to the United States. Did you ever uh, visit the, the countryside, the Gram in Bangladesh? A little bit, not a lot. Uh, you know, as I traveled um, to different parts of Bangladesh, I have been um, to different parts of Bangladesh, but I haven't spent extended amounts of time there. Okay, because everything you described, to be honest, uh, and I came here when I was six, but I have memories and I've gone back a few times the, 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 to my gram in Bangladesh. And a lot of things you, des you describe is, is like that communal uh, little village in, in my gram. Like, you know, you have these houses around this sort of like circle and in the middle, that's where everybody gets together and, and does their activities. That's where everybody does their, like, um, you know, uh, takes their, converts the rice to, I don't know, the, they dry it. I mean, vegetables, that's where they cut their vegetables. They make, you know, fried rice there. Like everything's done in that central environment. 
and, and it's sort of communal. Like, I feel like that idea, you know, like it's similar to that. So if you tell somebody in the Grammy in Bangladesh about this idea, it'd be like, oh, this is exactly what we do. Yeah, I, you know, it, it makes complete sense. Uh, you know, people don't understand this concept of community and connection has been around for years, centuries, right? How that's how villages were built. Mm-hmm. And they kind of came together organically it, with post-industrial re- revolution and uh, these sort of uh, urban family livings. You know, then we went into this efficiency mode of, uh, you know, building high-rise buildings or or buildings where people go and, and live uh, live in those. I think there is a need. It may not be for everyone. We don't believe Asada is for everyone, but there is a group of people who are willing to live in smaller homes because, you know, with that is, you know, with the industrial revolution and everything that's come up, and especially in the last 20 years in the U.S., as you know, homes have grown bigger and bigger and bigger. But, you know, two people live in a 4,000 square foot home, yeah. um, but they don't have any community or connection. Here, what we're doing is we have reduced the footprint of the home to more of an older cottage style, right? The, yeah. the homes in the United States, even um, uh, 50, 100 years ago, were smaller. Uh, but people had this community and connection in a central city square, town square where people went and saw each other, talked to each other. The concept of neighborhood, community and connection was very big. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's very connected to your Grameen home. What's uh, what's the average price for a monthly rental in Austin? Let's say, yeah, twelve hundred to five hundred, fifteen hundred dollars um, is what it is. Um, that's the average rent for a one-bedroom, two-bedroom apartment in Austin. Austin, as you know, is a booming market. Um, we are now moving. Our next community is opening up in uh, San Marcos, Texas, which is the home of Texas State University. About uh, I think about forty thousand students there. Um, so same uh, same kind of rental range. Uh, we're finding that re- uh, price doesn't seem to be an issue when people like the product. Mm-hmm. They really enjoy it. We've asked people about the price. We do a survey as people walk through. Price has never been an issue with this product once they see and experience it because we've designed the product very efficiently. So there's uh, everything is built in like um, storage and stuff and a lot of furniture built in. You don't need a lot of furniture to live in a uh, unit like this um but we also have a nice patio at the back so in places like texas the patio is very valuable because in the evenings you can sit outside mm-hmm. you can have a hammock or a sofa or something like that so th- there's a lot of things we have done that has made this product very very attractive even with an average price which could be considered higher for a per square square footage basis but um when they see the space they're like oh no i can live here I'm fascinated by Austin. I've never been. Uh, it's on my list, but I uh, people describe it as Brooklyn in in the South. What's what's what what's the genesis of, of Austin turning into this sort of like uh, microcosm of just you know all different people, of diversity in, in 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 the South? I think Austin has always had its charm uh, from te- uh, University of Texas Austin. That's a massive campus, as you know. Center. It's also the seat of their government. So it is the state capital. And Austin is surrounded by beautiful rivers and lakes and just been a beautiful haven for a lot of artists to live in. And uh, along came sort of Austin has become sort of the tech corridor uh, with the universities there. So there's a lot of technology there now. And as you probably know, uh, Elon Musk has announced he's spending a week, a month in, in Austin because he is bringing 
all three of his major businesses. There's a big gigafactory going up up, uh, up the door there, but he's bringing his um, uh, boring company as well as their uh, SpaceX um, launch pads right there. So there's a lot of research. There's a lot of availability of good talent. That's what draws a lot of industry. Um, as you can imagine, there's this whole I-35 corridor uh, between Dallas and Austin is just absolutely booming. Mm. And there's a large influx of people coming in, people from California, people coming from the North and the upper Midwest and um, just taking up and, and people just keep, it just keeps growing. And also, you know, Texas, as you know, has no income tax, state income tax. Mm. So that makes it very attractive for younger people to come in and, you know, put down their stakes, buy a home, land price is still reasonable, relatively reasonable. Maybe not in the exact core Austin market, but outside you can still get land. Um, so those are all the draws, I think, that's making Austin a very, very attractive place. And you know, South by Southwest is hosted yeah. in Austin, which is a big uh, festival of music and technology and arts coming together. Um, Austin City Limits is a big music festival that's happening, pretty much coincidental to our opening. So a lot of good things, uh, a lot of art, entertainment, technology, and that all that has come together in a very nice way in Austin. Is there a Bengali community in Austin? Um, I'm certain there's a large Bangladeshi community in, in uh, Austin. I, I don't live in Austin, so I okay. can't tell you how. Uh, it's my partner who lives in Austin. That's okay. He bought the land. So. Gotcha. So I'd love to hear about you. So I know you, you were you always, uh, I know you scaled businesses, but what, where did, how did you get started? Where did you go to school? So I did my undergraduate at University of Missouri in Columbia. And um, I did my master's in manufacturing at um, University of Toledo in Ohio. And interestingly enough, um, you know, I just wanted to be a plant manager. Uh, my dream when I was graduating is I wanted to be a plant manager. And I was very fortunate. I'm one of those people that I always tell uh, people that um, I've been very fortunate. I've had three dream jobs in my life. My first dream job was to be a plant manager. I made that when I was 27. Um, so I was like, wow, uh, what's next? So then, you know, I had a chance from there. You know, basically it was a small family-owned company that the plant management role. I came in as a senior industrial engineer and... Uh, Within um, two years, I doubled the size of the business. I brought in a lot of new sales. Mm -hmm. um, then I had a chance to go and work for large multinationals, uh, Allied Signal and ABB. Um, and it was in, in mostly in operations, running plants and things like that. Um, one of my ex-bosses uh, then invited me to take over as general manager of a business, a global business, my first um, global business. And that's kind of what was my second dream job. I wanted to run a global business here. I had 24 nationalities on my global team. I was doing businesses in, in, in over 80 different countries. I was uh, doing deals in Russia, Middle East, and um, China, you know, all sorts of fun things. Um, so that was my second dream job. And um, we doubled that size of that business. And uh, uh, I was then recruited away to become CEO of my first CEO role, I got a call and um, someone told me, well, you must be ready. And I'm like, I just wanted to be a plant manager. <laughs> so I had a chance to become a CEO um, very early in life of an American company. Uh, it was an environmental technology company based in Florida where I live now. And that was my third dream job is to take an actual company and rebrand it, reposition it, rejuvenate it 
And again, um, in five years, we were able to increase the owner's equity valuation by two and a half times, which was kind of the metric they looked at um, very significantly. So I'm, you know, I'm one of those people that I've just had pretty amazing opportunities come my way. I'm very grateful for everything that has been uh, that has been available to me. And uh, just, uh, you know, these are the things that taught me how to look at a product or a service and say, okay, where is this appropriate? How can we scale it up? Talk about that pivot from uh, engineering to to now uh, real estate. Um, you know, company. Uh, how did you have the confidence to make that change? So, uh, actually, I w- I've been in industrial manufacturing, big businesses like that for most of my life. This real estate pivot is relatively new. Um, is is a couple of years ago. I actually retired two years ago, oh. uh, and I said to myself, you know what? Um, I was in Boston, finished up an assignment there. We bought four different companies, put them together in one company, and I said, you know. Um, I'm done. I didn't want to live in Boston anymore. I loved the city. I, I, we lived in Cambridge. It was super cool. Uh, we walked everywhere, but the winters were just getting at me. And I, I had a, I had a home in Florida. And you know, Florida is a lot. Where I live is a lot like Bangladesh. Where, where you know, what part of Florida? South Florida and Fort Lauderdale. Okay. So um, you know, there are mango trees everywhere. There are people grow kalo jam here. You people get. <laughs> go to a Piara plantation and get Piara from there. So it's, it's very much like Bangladesh. You feel and it's hot and humid. And uh, I'm very comfortable with humidity. A yeah. lot of people complain about it. I grew up with humidity. I don't have anything to complain about that. Um, so for me, Florida became, uh, Florida became my home roughly about 13, 13 years ago when I first moved here. Um, so I was missing Florida intensely. So I said, I'm just going to move down to Florida and decide what I want to do. And I started a social capital investment um, fund to invest in Florida-based companies that are doing good and making money. The only thing I said to myself is whatever I do, I'm going to do it with um, people I like, and I want to enjoy doing what I do. So when you come to that point in your life where you've done some really good things and have had a good life, you say to yourself, okay, Whatever I do, whatever time I have left, I just want to do something meaningful. Uh, when this opportunity came to me, it kind of resonated with me on multiple levels. One was uh, the, the founder, basically. He was very conscientious, very ethical, very caring uh, individual. Um, and if you know, Casada's theme is micro green living. What we are trying to do is build sustainability through the whole process where um, every unit we have is very, very energy efficient. The design and manufacturing of them are also very efficient. And we are going for this whole environmental, social, and governance-oriented investment, which, you know, I'm a huge believer that, you know, you, you can make money and you can do good. You don't have to create a false choice where, oh, in order to make money, I have to do something that's "quote unquote" not good, right? You know, either cheat, steal, or or um, do something that destroys the environment or treat people badly. I think there is a there is a definite optimality point where doing good and making money are, can go very much hand in hand. Um, you know, and that's kind of the ethos we have built into Casada. 
And that's why I was so drawn to the startup. So it, it's not that I did a pivot. What I brought is my skill sets of scaling businesses on the industrial manufacturing side to the real estate side. Our, our goal in the next two years is to have at least 2,000 units of Casada in four or five different communities. And uh, then uh, in the next following five years is to have at least 5,000 of these units, uh, you know, probably in 20 to 30 communities. So that's kind of what we're looking at. We have other product iterations um, that we could do with it. We are staying very focused on Casada. Yeah, I'm just curious, uh, in any, any of your roles, uh, did you ever come across a, a Bengali person that you saw that acted as like sort of a mentor to you or somebody that you saw, wow, this, this Bengali person is really doing really well? So, you know, there's in the United States, there's not a lot of industrial um, Bangladeshis. Bangladeshis typically gravitate towards either computer-oriented fields or high-tech research Um a lot in uh, you know chemistry, physics, some in engineering. Um, I've been very fortunate. I've had good mentors in life um, that that are from some of them are from South Asia. I've had mentors from uh, I you know from uh, India and Pakistan. Um, nobody from Bangladesh uh, really mentored me uh, in my professional life, personal life. Of course, uh, there's been a lot of friends and family who have mentored me. Um, but the ideas of scaling businesses, I, I think the one disconnect I'll say, I, I think one of the questions you had for me was, did your family ever encourage you to do this? You know, when you're growing up in post-70s Bangladesh, um, there's this whole feeling that you have to be an engineer, a doctor, an architect, um, you know, what's considered a profession. Stable right? profession, yeah. Uh, at that time, Bangladesh was that those were the professions that were respected. In the 80s, the military became prominent. So people joined the military or mm. something with the military. Uh, but until then, it was pretty much all of that. Um, and in fact, I would say my family, uh, my parents, my mom specifically, my parents were very large in my life. Both my parents were educated in the West, in the United States. They went back and served oh. Bangladesh and lived there. Um, however, they never viewed business and entrepreneurship as exceptional. Mm. They, they viewed, in fact, I, I remember conversations with my mom where she would say, no, no, they are a business family. We are a professional family. We are not like them. In fact, she once gave, I asked her why. And she said, well, they have unlimited income. We have limited income. So this will never, this will never be a good uh, connection. Mm. So I, I just, you know, now sitting back, it seems so discriminatory. But mm. I look at this um, as that societal norm at that time. Business was never an encouraged profession. In fact, people used to look down on business people. They used to say, "What a money type. They're like uh, business people. That has completely changed now in Bangladesh, of course. Yeah. And I see that has been a huge disservice for me because I, I fought this for a very long time. I have had opportunities. And my first job, when I was um, uh, the plant manager, um, when I doubled the size of the business, I had gone to the business owners, uh, the two, two brothers, and said, hey, I can double your size of your business again. And they, they took a little bit of time to come back to me. But that's when I got an offer from Allied Signal and I jumped. 
they actually came back to me and offered me equity position in the business to stay on and be a partner in the business. I think personally, I was scared because yeah. I wasn't ready to make that leap into from being a professional engineer. I wanted to grow my career rather than being an entrepreneur. The If I was to tell somebody young now, I would say that, look, you are already an entrepreneur. The reason I say that is the moment you start your migration journey from Bangladesh to the United States or wherever you're headed, you have actually become an entrepreneur. The, because entrepreneurship is all about survival and creating value for yourself, right? And if you want for your community, the moment you have created that value proposition for yourself in a new society, learning a new language, learning how to behave, learning how to fit into the mold or, or trying to be innovative in that, you've immediately become an entrepreneur. So we are actually all entrepreneurs the moment you start your migration journey. But our mind baggage is still with our parents where they would have told us at the early age that, Nana, you have to be an engineer, you have to be a doctor in order to be, quote unquote, successful. Um, there are people now, there are lots of really good examples of entrepreneurs that are Bangladeshi and from other nationalities. And uh, so I think that is that mold is breaking. We just happen to be part of a generation where this was more of a norm. Absolutely. And, I've, and what you said about Bangladesh changing is definitely true. I, I, I'm sure you've seen on the podcast, I'm able to interview folks in Bangladesh that are starting companies and even their family members, their their prospective perspectives on Bepsha is is changing. Part of it is, I think, is in, in for a long time in Bangladesh to start Bepshas, you'd have to sort of, quote unquote, um, you know, bribe people or you know have have some you know funds uh, uh, under the table, and that's not the case anymore. Or or maybe it's, it's a little bit different now. But that was the that was the perception of Bepsha. It was like if you're doing Bepsha, you'd have to have some, you know, money come from you know, uh, different yeah. sources. I, I think, you know, I've actually written about it. I have a um, blog. So I wrote about, um, El I wrote an essay called Elephant on the Move, which is, I, Bangladesh is the symbol around that. And I think there are three sort of big things that have happened over the last 20 years that have started to create this ecosystem of entrepreneurship in Bangladesh. Number one, I think the... Uh, the democratic groups in Bangladesh since 1990s have been very, very instrumental in the last 20, 25 years has been, you know, since the fall of Ershad and, uh, you know, whatever, however you de define our democracy has been a big opening part. So most of those people who were born post liberation have a very different mindset than us who were born pre liberation. I've seen younger people in their 20s and 30s start businesses. I, I, I was talking to a young gentleman who started uh, exporting powdered moshla mm -hmm. from Bangladesh to uh, England. And now he recently started a solar farm in Bangladesh with his capital that he started there. Wow. So again, uh, this was not something I would think about when I was growing up, but people are very creative. I think that generation post who were born post-liberation uh, has a very different mindset than people who were born pre-liberation, number one. And I think the demo democratic roots have really helped that. And I think the second big driver in this is information technology. Accessibility of information is a big thing. It's opening people's eyes that all the things you can bring here, do here. Um, and that's what's driving some of this change. 
Um, I think both that democratic routes, IT infrastructure, um, you know, everybody now in Bangladesh has a cell phone. It's making people think that way. I mean, the, the, every time I go to Bangladesh, I'm super impressed when I see young people who are just coming up with business ideas that I, you know, when yeah. I was growing up, I just didn't have. Yeah. How often do you go back? I try to go back once a year. Awesome. Um, I couldn't go last year because of COVID. Yep, I yep. tried. I actually had tickets and everything. Actually, I did go last year. I'm sorry. I said I take that back. I went early last year, and right around the time COVID hit, I was supposed to go this year. Mm. I couldn't doubt. I'm hoping when things normalize a little bit. You, you still have a lot of family there. Uh, my parents have both passed away, so I have my favorite aunt there. So I go and okay. visit and my cousins i have 27 first cousins wow <laughs> a large families so very blessed in dhaka or chittagong uh, predominantly in dhaka okay dhaka is amazing i think the energy in dhaka i don't think it's unmatched it's unmatched it's uh and and also uh the food got to love the food even though it's not good for you know, for your stomach but i just love the food in dhaka it is great isn't it um, yeah, I already pick out the restaurants I want to eat to eat at in Dhaka before I go. And like on Monday, I'm having eating there. This is where I'm having my kuchka. So I already know I have, have it all mapped out. <laughs> is there is there any uh, Bangladeshi food in in Austin? Uh, yes, there is. But uh, I don't. There's a lot of Bangladeshi and Indian food in in uh, in Austin. I'm and, sorry. And I, how about Florida, where you are? Oh yeah, the, ba- Florida is one of the largest communities of Bangladeshi migrants. So there's like, uh, if I am right, there's like 100,000 Bangladeshis here wow. in the South Florida uh, area. There's a lot of people here. Um, so yeah, we can, we can find food here when we want. Awesome. Going back to real estate, what, what technologies and advances in real estate are you more, most excited about? There is tremendous work going on. I mean, in, even just to give you what we're doing in Casada, um, we have brought in 11 different technologies and incorporated them. Oh. Uh, into one tech stack, everything from you know opening your door uh, via your cell phone um, to um, um, uh, knowing what when which tenant will miss rent. Uh, we now have big data applications that when people apply for rent, we can immediately predict um, how good of a tenant they're going to be. That allows them to get a score to get into the community, but that that particular service also sends us a report saying this particular tenant tenant is more likely to miss rent. So we keep an eye out, saying that um, that you know that so the fintech side, the financial technology side of real estate is booming. The automation side is obviously booming, um, and I think the whole lifestyle element of it. I mean. We are looking at things, um, for instance, uh, if you're familiar with circadian rhythm of lighting, um, we are talking about our next future Casada units will have circadian rhythm lighting. So it'll start off with a low glow, like a light sunrise, and then it'll kind of get brighter throughout the day Mm. um, or or as it gets darker. Uh, So there's different types of technology coming into um, both the, you know, uh, comfort, uh, as well as, um, uh, you know, just efficiency from a fintech standpoint that are uh, that are really blowing up the real estate space quite a bit. Uh, not only that, I mean, everything from land selection now with uh, significant GIS, you know, ge- uh, geographic information systems data, you can look at a piece of land 
from way above before ever traveling. So when we select, like we're looking at markets between Orlando and Tampa, um, we get land proposals from builders or people who are looking to sell land. We do a pre-due diligence in three hours that would normally take three to four months, right? Because wow. we look at everything. So we can now, we have so much data um, that helps you uh, move the ball forward much faster. So there's a lot of uh, development going on in the real estate side. Wow. What's, uh, what, is, what do you see Casada doing in five years? I see Casada um, being in at least 10 really nice cities, um, having you know somewhere between two to 5,000 units. We are looking at upgrading our units. Um, we see uh, with the product, as I said, because there is a larger market span than we originally thought, we see that uh, we'll probably launch a higher branded product, um, which will be even more, uh, a little bit more luxurious, a little bit larger, maybe up to a thousand square feet, two bedrooms, but nicer bathrooms, things like that. There's also a need. Um, we have been approached by some people, um, for instance, um, veterans, uh, you know, they, they are looking for housing mm. for themselves. So we have been asked by somebody to say, hey, um, we'd like to build veteran housings with this. So that's an option. We just haven't explored all that. Um, also, uh, LGBTQ senior loneliness is a big issue. So, you know, one of our investors uh, in our, uh, in Casada is the Pride Fund, the first Pride Fund. So they are, they have talked to us about building LGBTQ housing for seniors using the Casada model. So we can bring our unit design, our technology, and change the lifestyle elements and bring it to any community that we want. I had a friend contact me from uh, Hollywood recently. Um, he's just a friend of mine. Uh, he said he wants to buy a piece of land and build 10 of these. And he said, would you be, would you be willing to license your technology to us? I just want to bring, build something that our friends, we can all kind of retire together. Awesome. So there are different areas we can go with Casada. We have, at least for the next two to three years, we are very focused on just growing Casada vertically and, and scaling it up. Uh, but once that is done, I think the concept of Casada with our unique design, unique technology, and sort of a lifestyle element shift, you can take it to specific demographics of people. Like um, if you wanted uh, um, a piece of land where you and your siblings or your best friends kind of got together once a year, you know, the other thing is we'll have is we'll have rental um, technology associated with it so you could rent it out. Uh, and then when you're ready to retire, you have a home to go and live in, in a smaller space. So there are many different ways we see Casada growing. Um, uh, we're just, we just need to be focused right now um, to be successful in our first stage. Awesome. Well, it's great talking to you. Like I said, uh, you know, I asked you that question about, uh, you know, seeing Bangladeshis, um, you know, as you were moving in your career. I mean, it's great for me to see someone like you doing what you're doing, something I can aspire to. So it's, uh, you know, great talking to you. And hopefully... We can uh, come back. You can come back and talk about uh, your next project. Sounds good. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Uh, have a great weekend and uh, we'll talk soon. The red and green I beat is always in my heart. Uh, I do it for my people, always in my thoughts. I gotta be honest with diamonds and pearls. Yeah, yeah. Bengal is in New York, all over the world. Uh, it's the bony show. Uh, hey, can you handle this? 
representing the boroughs where the bangles live From the slang we spit to the gangs we with It doesn't matter, we the essence of the Bangladesh I say, hey, come on, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live